Good morning, Life Church. It's good to see you, whether you're in the room with us or joining us via our live stream. Let me say a special word of welcome to you. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the elders here. I'm also on the staff, and I have the privilege of opening God's word with you this morning. So I'd love it if you'd turn in your Bible or on your Bible app to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Kids, if you're here, I know Miss Christine just gave you some things to do, but one of your very critical jobs this morning is to make sure that mom and dad pay attention. And so if at any point in time today you feel like they're not tracking with me, then you have my permission to give them a little elbow, maybe like stamped on on their foot just a little bit. It's totally okay if you do that today because I'm glad that you're here to help them follow along. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you're our guest today in the room or online, I think this is week four of our series walking through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the things that I find to be just so helpful and so valuable in this particular book of the Bible is the way Ecclesiastes consistently dismantles the cultural narratives that the world we live in wants us to buy into. Let me explain what I mean by that. The world around us is constantly presenting to us different pathways to joy and fullness and happiness in life. It's constantly trying to say to us, this is the way right here. Walk this way and you'll find fullness and happiness and joy. And it just presents to us a whole bunch of these different ways that we might walk toward joy in life. And what the book of Ecclesiastes does, which I'm just so grateful for, Ecclesiastes just holds up all of those different bad cultural narratives and pokes holes in them so that we're left with just this like stinky piece of Swiss cheese. So for example, yeah, somebody here does not like Swiss cheese. That's the best part of my day. It doesn't matter what else happens today. That was it. Um, so like, let me just use an example. Uh, let's say the cultural narrative of materialism. This is the narrative that is very prevalent in our world that says, he who has the most toys wins. It says the way to be full and happy in life, the way to have joy, is to fill your life with the most stuff or the best stuff or the nicest stuff or the stuff that you really want. And along that line, like if you're not happy, if you're not full, if you don't have peace, it's because there's a little bit more stuff out there that you don't yet have that you need. And so the world tells us that if we just accumulate more, then we'll be full, then we'll have joy. But Ecclesiastes just rips that apart, right? Ecclesiastes, it speaks to us from the wisdom of Solomon against the backdrop of Solomon's life. And Solomon says, I had everything, houses and gardens and silver and gold and treasure. I had it all and I found it all to be vanity, Ecclesiastes said. It's meaningless. It's like vapor chasing after a wind. Or we can think about the cultural narrative of accomplishment. Right? A lot of people in our world, they believe that the way to, to really be full in life, the way to have joy is to just accomplish something great. And so they throw themselves into their work, or they throw themselves into their family, or they throw themselves into this project or that project, and the hope is that they can just work hard enough and do enough to get to that point where finally they're full. But Ecclesiastes just says, that'll never work. Again, Solomon, he said, I did great things. I built buildings, architectural marvels. My wisdom was known the whole world over. People came from the far ends of the earth to sit under my governance and my wisdom. And still in the end, I found all of that, everything that I accomplished, 
to be meaningless, to be empty. It's like a chasing after the wind. And that's just how the book of Ecclesiastes moves through the various things that we might be tempted to give ourselves to in life. We're tempted again and again and again to buy into some new pathway to joy, only for Ecclesiastes to hold that up and just rip it apart. Our passage today will do that one more time, one new time. Right? See, many in our world, they've, they've reached the conclusion that living for material things, that that's too small, too shallow. That trying to make a name for yourself in this world, that's too small and too shallow. And I think that's right to come to that conclusion. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. That means that we are wired for something great, something transcendent even. And so we should intuitively sense that the things of this world are too small to give us joy, to give us peace, and to give us fullness. But in response to that, many in the world today will assume that that the best way to find peace and joy and fullness is to live for the common good. Their hope will be to make the world a better place. And they'll believe that in making the world a better place, they'll find the peace that they're truly looking for. For that reason, some people will invest their lives in politics, thinking, like, if I could just make the world's government better, then we would have everything we hoped for. Then we would have peace. Some people will take that and invest in education, thinking if we can just make people smarter, if we can just educate people better, then the world will be a better place and I'll have the peace that I'm looking for. Some people will use this and they'll throw themselves into any and every social justice cause, thinking that if they can just align themselves with anybody who's marginalized, anybody who's mistreated, if they can just get down dirty with the poor and try to make the lives of those poor people better, then then there will be, will be a better place. They'll have the peace and the joy and the fullness they're looking for. And I hope you'll hear me well on this, friends. Like any and all of those things are good things. Like we can and pursue any and all of those things. We can and, and should strive for the governments of the world to be more just. We can and should strive to educate people better. We can and should strive to be people who hurt with the hurting. None of those things are ultimate things. Which means that even if we give our whole lives to any one of them, in that thing we will never find the peace or the joy or the fullness that we really long for. That too is a cultural narrative that is just chasing after wind and vanity. That's what we'll see in our passage this morning. In our passage this morning, Ecclesiastes says that if this world is all there is, then even our best and our most selfless efforts are futile. And Ecclesiastes says that to force us to ask of ourselves the most critical questions that we can ask. Let me show you that in God's word, but first let me pray for us this morning, church. Father, we come to you thankful for time in your word now. And we pray that with this time in your word, you will give us attentiveness and understanding. Give us hearts that are soft to your purposes. And help me, Lord, to be clear so that we might hear from you and come to understand more fully just how beautiful you are and what our lives should look like in response to how beautiful you are. We pray these things today in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
And so I walked through um, this passage with uh, the staff this week, and some of the feedback that they gave me was that it might be helpful right at the beginning to kind of stand above our passage and try to help everyone understand kind of the, the structure of it or maybe the skeleton of it. We're looking today at Ecclesiastes 3, 16 to 4, 3, and the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't like work through these verses in a very straight line. He's kind of working in some circles. And so I'd like to show you how this passage is put together, because I think if we understand how the passage is put together, then we'll have a better shot at understanding what this means for us today. And so the first thing I want to point out is that this passage has bookends. Its bookends are the problem that the preacher is addressing. And so that problem, it's stated in chapter 3, verse 16. And then it's stated again in a slightly different way in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And so those are the bookends. And we'll look at the bookends first here in a moment. Then in response to that problem, the preacher, he's going to observe two things. And you can notice those observations because he says, introducing each one of them, I said in my heart. So in verse 17, he says that, I said in my heart. And then he says the same thing again in verse 18. And so the preacher, he states the problem. And then he makes two observations in light of that problem. But then those observations lead him to a question. And we'll see that question stated in verse 21 and then restated in verse 22. You can see why it's a little, little complicated this morning, right? But we're, we're chasing the answer to those questions, the questions that finally come in verse 21 and 22. And it's really the same question, just put two different ways. So now having said that, let's walk through this passage together. We'll start first with the problem, as it stated in chapter 3, verse 16. Read with me. The preacher says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And so the preacher, he's stating the problem. The problem is that the place where he expects and where we might expect to find justice, well, there isn't justice. There's evil. There's injustice. There's wickedness. And, and in the place where he might expect righteousness to rule, instead of righteousness, he finds, again, wickedness, evil, unrighteousness, and injustice. Now, what is this place of justice? Well, surely that's the courtroom. Right? And in the courtroom, the preacher does not find just laws. He does not find the just application of laws. No, he finds wickedness and injustice. He's making the observation that in this fallen world, even the place where we most expect to see justice is actually a place of wickedness. He's saying that this world is characterized more by injustice then it is characterized by justice. That evil rules more than justice rules. And of course, this is something that if we're honest with ourselves, we start to observe at a very young age. Right? It is at a very young age that children start to say to their parents, well, that's not fair. And it's at that very young age that their wise parents start to respond to them, but life isn't fair. We have a sense of this. That life isn't fair, that, that injustice rules in the place of justice. And as I think about the year that we are in, church, the season of life that we are walking through, man, the year 2020 
is making it so clear to us, isn't it, that our world is marked by injustice more than it is marked by justice. I mean, the year 2020, it's just making it so clear that in life, our opportunities, our advantages, and our privileges, they are not shaped by just factors. In fact, they're shaped most of all by where and when we were born and what kind of family we're born into. And so a child of a Syrian refugee family born in a refugee camp has just a fraction of the opportunity and privilege that my children and your children will experience in life. In our country, where supposedly we are more civilized and more just, we regularly see the rich get away with murder simply because they have the money to afford the best legal teams and mount the best legal defenses. And when a global pandemic threatens all of us, we realize that it is not just who is impacted most by this pandemic, right? It's the children who are already at a disadvantage because they don't have strong family support at home who are left hung out to dry when the schools around the world are forced to revert to e-learning. And it's those who have the least financial margin who are first to lose their jobs when the global economy crashes. Come on, in 2020, it's teaching us life isn't fair. As Solomon says, where we expect to find justice, instead we find injustice. And furthermore, I mean, Solomon's point here is that that injustice, it isn't going anywhere. It's here to stay. I mean, in our culture right now, we're, of course, especially aware of racial injustice in our culture. We're especially aware of our need, indeed, our responsibility to speak out against racial injustice as we see it. But church, we can't pretend for a moment that if we do that, that racial injustice will go away. We can't pretend for a moment that by speaking up and speaking out against racial injustice that we have the power to eradicate injustice. I mean, it's just not going to happen. We see racial injustice in the Bible as early as the book of Genesis. In the book of Galatians, we see the Apostle Paul, he's required to confront and rebuke the Apostle Peter for his own racial bias and racial injustice. I mean, Peter, the same dude to whom Jesus said, Peter, upon you, I'm going to build my church. Even he is prone to stray into bad racial bias and unjust behaviors as a result. I mean, racial injustice, it's not going anywhere. It's as old as dirt. And we will always endure it in a fallen world. We can fight it. We should fight it. But we can't end it. There will always be in this life injustice in the place justice. And just to reiterate that point, the preacher, he makes the same kinds of statements in chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. This is the other bookend, the other part of the problem. He says, In verse 1, again, I saw all the oppressions that were done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And so this is insult to injury, isn't it, church? Right? There are the oppressed, oppressed by powerful oppressors, but that's not enough. The oppressed have no one to comfort them, no one to cry with them, no one who cares. 
the world looks upon their impression in cold-hearted apathy and sad indifference. And because of that, the preacher says, you know, maybe it would be better to be dead. In verse 2, he says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Maybe better to be dead than to live in a fallen world like this one where the oppressed have no one to cry with them. Even better than being dead with just having never been born at all. That's the point of verse 3. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, one of the ways that Ecclesiastes works is the preacher makes really hard, unsettling statements to wake us up. He says things like this, like it would be better never to have been born than to live in an unjust world. And he makes those statements, they're like smelling salts that are intended to wake us up out of our days, out of our complacency, out of our stupor. Here he uses the inevitability and the pain of injustice really to force us to wrestle with two things. And those are the two observations that he makes, one in verse 17 and the next beginning in verse 18. Let's look at each of them. First, verse 17. This is the first observation he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every word. Now last week, we considered the fact that there is, according to Ecclesiastes, a time for every season under heaven. Right, a time for mourning and a time for celebration. A time to be born and a time to die. And Ecclesiastes' point was that those times, they are set and established by God himself. Now, Ecclesiastes tells us, there's a time for justice. There's a time when God will justly judge the righteous and the wicked. But his point is that now is not yet that time. This is still the time for injustice. The time for justice is still to come. Now, I think that's encouraging for a few reasons. First of all, it, it tells us that injustice has a shelf life. Right? Wickedness in the world that has an expiration date. Yes, it's true now. Yes, it's prevalent now. But there will be a day when it's not prevalent anymore. Secondly, this should encourage us because this makes it clear that this battle between justice and injustice, this matter of the oppressed not having anyone to mourn with them and comfort them, and the oppressors having all the power, well, frankly, that's a conversation on which God takes sides. He's not indifferent to injustice in the world. He's not indifferent to oppression in the world. In fact, he's squarely and clearly on the side of the oppressed. He's squarely and clearly on the side of those who suffer under injustice. And we see that as we read the Bible. The Old Testament prophets, they just clearly witness again and again and again to the fact that God is on the side of those who suffer. That he loves the widows and the sojourners and the the orphans in the world. Those who suffer from injustice in the world. In the Old Testament, again and again and again, the prophets, they rebuked God's people for not caring enough about the widows and the orphans and the sojourners in the world. And then in the New Testament, the true and better prophet, Jesus himself comes, the word made flesh comes, and he perfectly embodies God's love and concern 
for those who are oppressed. He weeps over the injustice he sees in the world. He's broken by the pain he witnesses in the world. And then he confronts those same things head on. I mean, you can picture Jesus turning over tables in the temple when he witnesses the oppression of the moneylenders in the temple. And so we can be encouraged because God, he's not silent on the issue of injustice. He hates injustice and he loves those who suffer injustice. We can be encouraged to know this, just as we're encouraged to live as he did in a broken world. But the final thing that should encourage us here is the fact that the fact that God will one day judge justly the righteous and the wicked, it actually helps us understand why God is waiting to bring justice now. I mean, isn't that the obvious question? If God will one day justly judge the righteous and the wicked, if God is for the oppressed and against oppression, then why isn't he coming to judge those things right now? Right now, at this moment, why doesn't he bring all of those things to an end? Why does he wait? Why does he delay? A couple of months ago, on a Saturday afternoon, um, I was driving here to the church building, And uh, my commute right now, it involves about 15 miles of driving on this little two-lane country highway. And I pulled out on that highway and pretty quickly came up upon this old van that was driving in the same direction as I was on this two-lane highway. And uh, this van was a sight to behold, right? Uh, It looked like it was about as old as I am. Um, It was covered all over the back with these, like, 1980s-era Uh, bumper stickers that just made me really nostalgic. And um, because of the bumper stickers and then because of how much rust was all over this vehicle, I I honestly could not tell, like, what color the vehicle was originally. Like, it was just impossible to discern that. And so um, I I found this vehicle really amusing just to, like, look at and take in for a moment. But uh, my amusement waned pretty quickly because I quickly realized that he was driving about, like, 20 miles under the speed limit. And I was going to be frustrated by that. And so... Now, in his defense, like, I don't think the vehicle was capable of going any faster than that, right? Like, had it actually been able to get up to the speed limit, it surely would have just come apart right in front of me. And so I was glad for his sake and everyone's that he was driving below the speed limit, but I was like, I'm not going to wait on this guy. And so the earliest moment that it was legal and safe to do it, I pulled over across the dashed yellow line into the left lane and floored my little Honda Civic and drove around him and pulled back into the right lane. And wouldn't you know it, like... The second I pulled back over into the right lane, I passed, parked under a tree, a police officer with his radar gun pointed right at me. I mean, I saw it. We made eye contact practically as I drove past him. And as I expected to in that moment, I saw his lights turn on. He pulled out into the traffic and followed me. And I pulled off the road and (laughs) insult to injury. The van, which was now like barely even moving, just lumbered past me as the police officer pulled up behind me on the shoulder of the road and got out, and I had a conversation with my newest friend, a member of North Carolina's Highway Patrol. I imagine you've been in that position at some point in your life, right? Like where you're sitting there behind the wheel of your car, and you know that you're guilty. You know you've committed a traffic violation of some kind, and the police officer, you know that he's trying to decide between giving you a warning or giving you a ticket, and you're just sitting there thinking to yourself, man, I really don't want justice right now. What I want right now, because I know I'm guilty, is mercy. 
And isn't that true? When we know we're guilty, we don't want somebody to give us what we deserve. We don't want the punishment that we've earned. We want mercy. We want someone to look past our misdeed. We want somebody to give us a second chance, an opportunity to make things right. And so when we're wrong, when we're guilty, we long for mercy. Now when someone else is wrong, we want them to have justice. When we see the video of Derek Chauvin putting his knee to George Floyd's neck, we think, man, I don't want that guy to get mercy. I want that guy to get justice. When somebody steals our identity and runs up a massive bill on our credit cards, we don't want that person to get mercy. We want that person found, and we want them to get justice. When a peaceful protest in downtown Salisbury turns into a violent looter or riot erupts, like, we don't want that person to get mercy. We want that person found and brought to justice. That's how we always are. When we're wrong, when we're guilty, we want mercy. But when someone else is wrong, we want them to get justice. Friends, this is why the Lord waits to bring justice. The reason the Lord tarries and does not come and bring his perfect justice today. The reason the Lord tarries and does not come and bring an end to all of the oppression and all of the injustice today is because he longs to show us mercy. And he wants us to turn from our sin and to trust in his gospel in faith while we still can. I mean, if the Lord came today, his perfect justice would fall on anyone and everyone who hasn't trusted in Jesus in faith. If the Lord came today, his perfect justice would crush anyone and everyone who is not united to Christ by faith. If the Lord came today, it would be too late for your lost friend, for your lost family member, for your lost neighbor. It would be too late for you if you've yet to turn from your sin and to embrace the good news of his gospel. Church, the only reason God permits wickedness and suffering and injustice for a time, it's an expression of his kindness for us because he's simply giving us more time to turn to him. And how kind he is to do that. Won't you turn to him? Won't you turn to his mercy before it's too late. That's the first thing that Solomon observes when he sees the wickedness and the injustice in the world. He remembers that God will judge the righteous and the wicked in due time. The second thing that he observes is that death tests us. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. This is not a flattering comparison, but let's make sure that we understand it for a moment. Solomon is saying that death tests us. And, and sometimes a test reveals to someone else how much you know. But other times, and this is one of those times, death, or something, a test reveals to you where you are. A test helps you understand yourself clearly. It helps you see yourself clearly. And Solomon's point is that death reveals to us that we are no different 
than the beasts. How are we like beasts? Keep reading, verse 19. He says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. So men are like beasts because men and beasts die. All of us die. We have no advantage over beasts, Solomon says. In this life, maybe we do have advantage over beasts. We can communicate with great sophistication, and we can develop sophisticated technology, and we can use our opposable thumbs to build great things, but death will come, and all of our sophisticated communication will be silent, and all of our advanced technology will mean nothing, and our opposable thumbs will rot in our graves, just like the claw of your pet dog Fluffy does. But when death comes, we will be no different than the beasts, the preacher says. He goes on in verse 20, he says, all go to one place. What is that place? Now, the preacher's not trying to teach us whether or not your dog goes to heaven here. I mean, the answer to that is obvious. If your dog is a poodle, no, he does not go to heaven. But that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to say that all go to the grave. He goes on, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Preacher says that simply to then invite these questions. He says in verse 21, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And then hear it, he restates the question one more time Who can bring him to see what will be? after. Who knows what happens after we die? Death comes for us all. Who can bring man to see what will be after him? So consider the big picture, friend. The preacher, he's observed that injustice abounds. He's observed that there will be a time when God judges the righteous and the wicked, and he does all of that to prove to us our own mortality to say that we're just like the beasts, that when death comes, it will come for all of us alike. And now he asks, so what? Why does it matter when we can't know what comes after death? Now this is the moment where it's important for us to pause and talk about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, your Old Testament, it has 39 books. Your New Testament, it has 27 books. And what I hope you know and believe with your whole soul is that all 66 of those books together are telling one story, right? They're not a bunch of random collections of material that just, you know, got bound together in one book. No, they all, in beautiful unity and cohesion, tell us the story of everything that God is doing to redeem what was broken in the world and to save lost sinners like you and me through the person of his son and through the power of his spirit to bring us back to him so that we can forever enjoy our place in his family. All of the Bible is telling that story. But what we need to understand is that the Bible does that in different ways. Sometimes in the Old Testament, there are ideas that are anticipated, but they're not fulfilled until the New Testament. Sometimes in the Old Testament, there are prophecies made 
that are fulfilled in the New Testament. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God makes promises that he does not keep until the New Testament. Sometimes there are stories that are told that are unpacked more fully in the New Testament. And so the New Testament is always helping us understand the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is always asking questions that the New Testament helps us to answer. And that's what we see here. The preacher, he's asking questions. And I think that he knows the answers to these questions. But he doesn't tell us the answers because he wants us to long for these answers in the New Testament. And so he asks, who knows? Does the spirit of man go up or does it go down? Who can bring man to see what will be after him? And those are questions that we find clear and glorious answers to, friends, in the New Testament. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love it if you turn to John chapter 5. Look at just two verses, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus, he speaks to these very issues. He answers these very questions. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, a time is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So there's a time coming when everyone who's in the tombs, everyone who's dead, will hear the voice of the Son of Man, who is the judge of the righteous and the wicked. He says all in the tombs will hear his voice, and they'll come out of their tombs. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so Jesus here, he's telling us what will happen to us when we die. He's saying that the Son of Man will come and he will speak and all who are dead will rise from their graves. Some will rise up to resurrection life. That's what we often call heaven. Some will rise up to judgment. That's what we often call hell. But what we need to understand is that they will, they will rise to two different destinations. But we need to understand what Jesus is saying here in the context of the rest of his teaching about what happens after we die. See, I don't want us to think that what Jesus is suggesting here is anything like what the majority of the religions in the world say will happen when we die. See, the majority of the religions in the world, they all have like a take on this. And, and actually, in my experience, there are a lot of Christians who, who think that this is true as well. It's something like this. We die and we appear before some kind of heavenly being, some divine figure. And that divine figure, he has two scales. In one scale, he measures every righteous thing that we've done. And on the other scale, he measures every unrighteous thing that we've done. And so long as what goes in your good scale outweighs what goes in your bad scale, the majority of the people who walk this planet believe that if that's true for you, you will go to the good place, whatever that happens to be called in that particular faith tradition. A lot of people believe this. A lot of supposedly Christians believe this. But what I want to lay before you this morning, church, is that the God who would support that kind of system, the God who would weigh out your good deeds versus your bad and let you into the good place based on the simple fact that your good deeds seemed to outweigh your bad deeds, that God would be a terrible monster. I mean, if he existed, he would be wicked and evil and unjust and not worthy of our worship. 
I mean, think about a human judge that operated that way. Think about the judge that's going to hear the trial of Derek Chauvin. And imagine that that judge said, well, you know, on the, the one hand, I know he's got that whole murder thing. He seemed to be driven by racial prejudice and anger and hate, and he, he killed a guy in cold blood. And I realize he has that going against him. But on the other hand, he seemed to be a pretty decent father, and he did a lot of community service, and he didn't have any other really major black marks on his record. And so I've decided in his case that the good outweighs the bad, and so I'm going to release him. I mean, if a human judge did that, there would be chaos. There would be pandemonium. I mean, if we think we've seen rioting, we haven't seen it yet, like we would see in response to a judge saying, I think in this case, the good outweighs the bad. Friends, this is why the God of the Bible, if he is to justly judge the righteous and the wicked, must fully and completely punish every hint of sin in us. That's why he must fully and completely punish not just the big things that we've done wrong, right? Not just the things that make his top 10 list, but everything that we've thought that we shouldn't have thought, everything that we haven't thought that we should have thought, everything that we felt that we shouldn't have felt, everything that we haven't felt that we should have felt. It's why he has to punish every single iota of sin in us if he is indeed going to be just. And friends, that would be, that would be terrible news for all of us, apart from the fact that if you are a Christian today, he's already done it. He's already done it. I mean, when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, hung on his cross, when he was nailed to that tree, and the sky turned dark in the middle of the day, darkness in the middle of the day in the Old Testament, that's always a sign of judgment, by the way, because in that moment, on that cross, on our behalf, Jesus was enduring the just and righteous wrath of God that we deserved. That's why he cried out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that God was just a little tiny bit angry with him in that moment. It's that the Father turned his face away from his Son, the Son with whom he had enjoyed perfect union and fellowship from before the foundation of the earth. He turned his face away from his Son because he was pouring out his full wrath, his full judgment. His full contempt against our sin. He laid it on the Son. So that that penalty is paid. So that when God the Father sees us now, he can justly say, not guilty. He's just. He's not going to cause somebody to pay the penalty twice. Right? He's not going to crucify Jesus again. And he's not going to crucify you for your sin if you've trusted him in faith. So he can justly justify those who trust in him, who embrace the good news of his gospel through faith, and who walk with him in this life. Friends, there will be a day when God judges the wicked and the righteous, the evil and the unrighteous. There will be a day when he, he calls us from our tombs, and if we're in faith, we'll rise to resurrection life, to a place without injustice, without oppression, to a place where righteousness and peace will reign, to a place that is completely and forever without darkness, because the glory of Jesus will shine so brightly in that place that there will be no need for a sun. And as we think about that, 
My only question for you today is, where are you? I mean, when you die, when you are rendered no better than the beasts, when you lie in your grave, what will be your fate when the Lord calls you out of that grave? Have you trusted in his perfect saving work in your life? Do you continue every day to put your trust in his perfect saving work in your life? And do you live every day in this broken world for him? I pray that you do. I pray that we all do. In his kindness today, he lets injustice linger. But he will not wait forever. Let's be ready for him to come. Pray with me, church. God, we thank you for your perfect justice. And we thank you for the fact that in your wisdom, you devised a way that we can be made just even though we are unjust. That we can be made holy even though we are unholy. That we can be made clean even though we are unclean. Lord, we could not have made that way, but you did through your son. And we praise you for that today. We pray that in light of the perfect justice that you will bring and in light of the perfect justice that is already satisfied by Jesus on the cross. We pray that we as your people will be stirred to worship you. In Christ's name we pray these things.